Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Well, hello there, church. My name is Dave, and I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors at Upper Room. I hope that you are having a fantastic Canada Day long weekend. If you have been with us for the past few weeks, then you will know that we are in a teaching series called The Power of One, which is all about finding ways for us to be unified and made one together as a community as we go forward on mission with Jesus. And in order to do this, we've been spending our time in the New Testament letter to the church in an ancient city called Philippi. It's called the Letter to the Philippians. And we're going to continue on in that same theme today. And really what we're going to do is zero in on Philippians chapter 2, the first part of Philippians chapter 2, which I believe may be the most concise, the most poignant passage in all of Scripture that talks about not only how we are to be united with one another, but actually how unity, how oneness is even made possible. Something I want to say right from the beginning, uh, not just from the beginning of this message, but really something for this entire series is that when we're talking about unity and oneness in the midst of diversity, we're not necessarily talking about um, what it's meant to see the entire world unified and brought together, no matter our differences, everyone's tolerant, everyone's accepting, let's all sing Kumbaya. We're not not talking about that. That's not what we're doing. Rather, the purpose of this series is actually uh, to provide insight and get some clear understanding and instruction for how we within the church are meant to live. What does it mean for followers of Jesus to be united with one another, to be made one together? And it is true that there is like tremendous division and tremendous diversity in the world around us, but, but our aim is never to criticize or condemn what's going on out there, but rather our hope in this entire series is to bring us to a place of self-examination within ourselves, within the church, because let's be honest, what qualifies us to comment on what's happening outside in the world and any division we may see in the world around us? What, what qualifies us to comment on that if we haven't first stopped and looked at the very things that may be causing division among us within the church? And in order to do that, we have to do some self-examination. We have to run some diagnostics. We have to take a look at how are we doing? What are we looking like? What are we feeling? What are we sensing? Why would we do all this? Why is this worth it? Why is this self-examination stuff worth it? Well, I believe it's worth it because God's mission for the world is to begin restore, is to restore it back to the way that he initially intended for it to be in the first place. And, And as far as God is concerned, when it comes to restoring creation, he is such a relational God that he wants to see relationships and of all people brought back and restored. People made one. And what he's doing, as we see in Scripture, he's actually starting this mission, or he started, I should say, this mission in the church to use followers of Jesus as the example, as the people who go out to bring the, the, the restorative power of God into the world wherever we go. You know, maybe you're thinking, uh, you know, what does this have to do with me? Like, like maybe you're in church today for the first time ever. 
Maybe you're here for the first time in a long time. Uh, maybe, maybe you did follow Jesus at one point in your life, but then you kind of walked away or, or you thought you, you feel as if God has walked away from you. Maybe you're just asking some questions. And here I am saying that this is a message to followers of Jesus. And you're saying, well, I don't even know if I followed Jesus. What's in it for me? Well, actually, it doesn't mean that you're left out. It doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to glean from this morning's content or for this entire series. Actually, what my, I would hope would happen is that as we talk about the ways that Jesus is uniting his followers, as he's bringing them together to be one, that as we do that, it will actually provide a beautiful picture of what the church is actually meant to look like. As a church, we are striving to be on mission with Jesus. Since 2016, our church has been following God's call and direction into what we've called our REACH vision, which is that Upper Room would be one church of five congregations impacting 3,000 people in the places we live. We want to be a church that is both deep and wide. We, we want to go deep and continue to grow deeper in, in Jesus, deeper in our faith, deeper in our relationships. But we also, at the same time, want to be reaching wider so that we may reach out to others so they too can experience the love and the presence of God just like we have. We have this conviction that, that new churches reach new people who are not yet connected to Jesus. And so this is our mission. This is our vision. This is our purpose for existing as a church. Upper room, we don't want to be an insular, inward-focused, self-important kind of church. We don't want to be only concerned about our own needs, worrying about ourselves, making sure we take care of, of our own people only. That, that's not what we want. And don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we don't care. It just means we don't want it to just be about like some type of inside club. Rather, we want to be people who are so on mission with Jesus that we see opportunities to share his love with people who have not yet heard about him everywhere we go. And this is what the journey of faith is all about. And yet, as with many things in our faith, it's one thing to hear what Scripture may say on a particular subject. It's one thing to hear stories of how people are engaging with God's mission. But it's an entirely different thing when it comes to ourselves having to face the realities of what it means for us personally to be engaged with the mission of God. We can get very excited and even very passionate about the things of God. Uh, all the time we can be excited. Once in a while maybe we hear an inspirational story. But we can also get to the point where we feel like the mission of God is now getting uncomfortably close to us. Like the rubber is about to hit the road. We might begin to feel tensions around, well, no, there's now some personal cost involved for me. There are some personal risks. There are some things in my own life that are now on the line. Last year, we became one church in two places as we launched Upper Room in Bolton. Christmas Eve was our official formal launch. And in about a year's time from now, our hope is to be launching a third congregation in the King Oak Ridges area. And so if you've been with our church for any amount of time, uh, the, last, the last year at the very least, then you are probably beginning to feel some of the tensions that come with being a multi-site church, that come with being a church that's that's interested in not just staying where we're at, but actually expanding and going into new communities. Uh, for example, you've begun, we've all together begun to experience the realities of what it means to have a rotating, rotating preachers. 
right? That's not necessarily a common thing in other churches. And yet here we are back and forth, VJ and I, using leveraging video uh, while VJ is on sabbatical, experimenting with some of these messages. We're learning some of that. And that, that maybe for some is easy and, and, and not a big deal. And for others maybe feels like, oh, this is really different. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet. We've begun to feel tensions around uh, what it means to share resources. What does it mean to have uh, a building in, in Vaughan uh, and, and a congregation that meets in Woodbridge and yet and another congregation that meets in Bolton? What does it mean to have shared finances where now it's not just uh, supporting buildings and programs and, and things that are right for just us, but it's actually spread out among two places? Uh, shared staffing and shared leadership. It's not just in our preaching model. Our elders are overseeing both sites now. Our staff are, are, are functioning as central services and central service roles where they're actually providing support to both locations. And so as this has been happening already, Bolton, our congregation in Bolton, has been learning what it looks like to be a church that's brought into a bigger family. They've learned the blessings of accountability, the, the, the joys of, of having shared resources that come with being part of a broader church of families, like being a church, one church in multiple places. At the same time, though, the people in Bolton have had to grieve and mourn some losses in that they're no longer an autonomous individual church. They have gone through an identity change. They're on this learning curve of beginning to know what it means to be upper room community church in Bolton. It's probably safe to say that as long as we've been uh, just two sites, Vaughn and Bolton, Bolton has actually experienced the, the majority of the growing pains that come with multi-site. But that's beginning to change, right? Vaughn is now beginning to experience or feel more heavily, more personally, um, the types of uh, tensions or, or concerns that come with being multi-site as we get ready to launch King Oak Ridges. Vaughn is certainly feeling it. And so if we're a church that's on mission, working towards reaching new people for Jesus, and yet we have these tensions that arise from this multi-site vision, it might actually cause us to wonder whether or not the, the mission of God is, actually not, is not actually something that is bringing us together. But as we step forward in this multi-site vision, um, if this is actually a thing that maybe is dividing us. And it leaves us with some tensions because we do have differences in opinion and differences of feeling and different thoughts when it comes to a variety of things. Perhaps it's how the church is led, right? We all have opinions about how decisions ought to be made, what a strategy should be, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, what we think will work or won't work. Maybe you're feeling some of these tensions. Maybe you have concerns around leadership, right? Well, well, who's leading and how did they get into that leadership position? And I don't know if I want to follow them. And are they credible? Are they worth following? Maybe we have a competing agendas or ideas, right? People asking the question, are we ready to multi multiply? Seems like there's still lots of work to be done in, in our two sites, let alone going to three. Or, or maybe it seems like our church is too focused on, on starting new congregations that we won't actually have time to develop the ministries or the programs that are most important to me. Maybe we're going to end up in a place or you've already fallen into this place of uh, tensions around comparing yourself, uh, comparing the two sites. Or what will be three sites, right? Well, why do they have a building that seems clean all the time? And why do we seem to get the runaround? And why do they have more volunteers? Or why do they get more staff attention? Or, or look at who's going there and who's staying here. And, and, and we can get into this place of competition or comparison with one another. That's a real tension. Maybe you're wondering, why are we doing this at all? 
Like why, why bother doing multi-site? Why bother starting new congregations? What we had going in Vaughan was a good thing. The church was growing. Why not focus our efforts and our time and our money on getting our own building, growing one congregation there? Why do we have to mess with all of this stuff and launch, an extra, launch extra sites? I would bet that if we were to interview every individual in the church or every family in the church, that we would probably get a wide variety, maybe even a different opinion or expression of feeling for every person that we ask when it comes to these things. And yet... Here we are as a local church, people called Upper Room, trying to follow Jesus together, reach new people in the process, and we can begin to feel that the mission we hoped at one point would unite us is actually causing too much tension and causing us to feel divided from one another. Now, I don't want to paint, I don't want to paint some bleak picture of our church and make it seem like you know we're on the verge of a civil war or a split or there's just people fighting and screaming and so I don't I don't want to do that because that's not true at all actually God has done remarkable things as he's spoken to our congregation as he's led our congregation I believe he's protected us from many things but what I'm saying is these types of tensions could be the very things that, that make us feel uncertain about whether or not oneness or unity is actually even possible you know, maybe for some of us, these concerns have, have led us into a place of, of bitterness. Maybe it's led us to be passive-aggressive in our conversations. Or maybe we, we, we have these tensions and we don't know how to deal with them. And so we've actually leaned into secrecy or gossip. Or, or we're talking about certain things with certain individuals, but never bringing them to the table to actually talk about on a large scale. And, and this actually may be contributing to building a wall that divides. You know, there's, of course, the flip side. Right? The flip side of this is people who are right on board, who are, are all systems go, who are excited about all this stuff, but have come to the point of saying to anybody who has any hesitation or question, bah, you just don't have any faith or you're not willing to risk it. And actually that in and of itself builds up a wall and can be dividing as well. With all of these questions, with all of these differences in opinion, with all of the different contexts that come with each of the local sites, we run the risk of holding on so tightly to our own ideals and our own comforts that we may end up missing entirely what God is calling us into as a church. As I mentioned earlier, this is a series in the, in the letter to the Philippians. And right out of the New Testament, there was a church that was about 10 or 11 years old at the time of receiving this letter. And they had their own issues. They had their own, uh, um, their own nuances, their own things that they had to deal with that weren't exactly like the tensions we feel. But they certainly had uh, stuff that they were working through, which is why the Apostle Paul, as he wrote this, talked about the importance of unity. And even though this letter was written some 2,000 years ago, there's so much relevance in it for us today. And as we just heard read, I'm going to reiterate a few passages, a few portions of the passage, because I just feel like they're so big and so important, and I don't want us to miss out on, on the depth of what's here. And so Paul says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind. Our unity with one another comes as the result of our unity with Jesus. 
the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that we have never once been asked to do any of it alone. Right, right from the beginning, when you heard, when I heard the message of good news, the, uh, the message of hope, the message of love and forgiveness, the message of new life and purpose, of grace and mercy that comes with Jesus, from the moment we began hearing the messages, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, we were never expected to go find those things on our own because the way that the Christian faith works is we receive these things as we receive Jesus. Jesus himself is given to us as a gift. And from the moment we enter into that relationship with him, of trusting him and following him, at the very least, he is with us the entire way. Now, the beauty of the Christian faith is that we're also set up to function in community, like to be with others and understanding that we're living out our lives together. This means that we can't experience the fullness of, of how our lives are really meant to live, how we were created to live. We can't live out the fullness of that unless Jesus is a part of it, unless we're united with him. It's because, this is all because it is through faith that we are united and made one with Jesus and made right with God. And, and so it's in our connection to Jesus that we receive forgiveness and grace. It's in our relationship with Jesus that we find our identity and we find our purpose. It's in our union or our oneness with Jesus that our mindset and our outlook on life is completely changed. And, and as we're in relationship united with Jesus, it's through our connection to him that we're totally, we get, receive a completely new mindset that reframes the way we view every other relationship that we have. Which means if you are following Jesus, if you've trusted him with your life, you've, you've sought his forgiveness, you're living in his grace, it's because you got to a point in your life where you knew you couldn't do it on your own anymore. Those of us who are united with Jesus at one point realized that we didn't just need to, to be saved from sin and from death, but we actually needed to be saved from ourselves. And Jesus is saying, as he is united to us or with us, made one with us, he is going to be with us all the way through. And he does give us a new mindset. He does show us a new way to look at others. Through the very miracle that we are made one and united with Jesus, that he has, has rescued us, for the very same thing is what gives us hope to change our perspective on others because we all need him. Nobody needs Jesus any more or any less than anyone else. We all need Jesus the exact same. We need him for everything. We need him fully and completely at every moment of every day. There's no one that needs him a little more or a little less. We all need him completely for everything. And, and that's something that we are aware of. And we become, uh, we become clear on that as we grow in our faith. And so as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, as we grow in our unity with him, then we actually begin to remember that it's because he's done this for us, we're able to live and interact with people in a very similar way. It's actually our unity with Jesus that gives us hope that we actually can be united with others. Because just as he is continually working to put our lives back together, it's through him that we're able to taste and see the very, the very ways that he is actively working to put the entire world back together. And this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying before you can even think about being united or being made one with anyone else, you've got to be in this place of being made one with Jesus. And he continues, the writer, and he goes on and he says very practically, do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I find verses like this to be so bittersweet. Verses like this are sweet because they're very clear. There's no real need for interpretation. There's no mystery locked away. There's no wonder. Hmm, I wonder what I think he's saying. And so it's clear. It's, that makes it kind of sweet. But it's bitter for exactly the same reasons. It, it's, it means exactly what it says. It says exactly what it means. It, there is no room for mystery. There isn't any mystery. or There isn't much interpretation that is needing, needed. And what makes it a little bitter is that it stings a little bit. It may be easy to understand, but it's difficult to live out. It's a challenge. It's hard. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing. Do nothing for the purpose of trying to get yourself ahead. Do nothing for the purpose of trying to protect our own reputation. Do nothing out of competition with anyone else. Do nothing with the hopes of trying to drive your own agenda. Do nothing out of jealousy or pride. There's no action, there's nothing that a follower of Jesus should do that is about presenting or promoting oneself. Nothing. Nothing is to be done out of rivalry, or out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, we are to, in humility, value others above ourselves. In humility, value others above ourselves. Which means we are to become servants to every single person living as if they are our superior. We become a servant to all. We are to be a servants to those we disagree with. We are to be a servants to those we don't get along with. We are to be a servants to those who take advantage of us. We're to be as servants to those that, that wrongfully represent us. We're to be as servants to the most difficult people. This even implies that we're to be servants to those that may have situated themselves as our enemies. And there are so many relational implications for this that Paul, the writer, doesn't even give a, a list. He doesn't say, now here's how you do this in your marriage, and here's how you do this with your friends, and here's how you do this at school, here's how you do this at your job, here's how you do this in your singleness. He, he doesn't say any of that because that's not his point. His point is not that it's supposed to be different with every different person. The point is it's the exact same. Every single person is to be treated as our superior. It's in humility that we value others above ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I read verses like this, and this isn't the only place in Scripture that talks like this, that gives us words that are so challenging. I read words like this sometimes, and I say, I don't know if this is possible. Like I say, I don't know if this can actually be done. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, think about how difficult it is to be a servant and to humble yourselves, even with the people you live with. Even with the people you love most, your family, your closest friends. It's even difficult to do this with them. And yet Paul is saying, with every single person, how can this be? How is this possible? I actually believe that this is Paul's point. 
I, I think he's intentionally putting his finger on the very thing that is so opposite to human nature. This does not come naturally to us. And he, he's putting his finger on something that's so difficult, so impossible, so, so weighty. And I believe that he's doing this to make clear his point how remarkable a thing it is that Jesus did these things for us long before he ever asked us to do them for others. That's exactly what Paul says, isn't it? He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you are following Jesus, if you are living in unity with him, living out the new life he's given you, that is only made possible because he did the very thing that we could never do for ourselves. He gave up everything he had for the sake of others, for you, for me, and for everyone. I mean, look at, the, look at how much is packed away in these verses, right? Who being in very nature God. It's saying, this is telling us, reminding us that Jesus is God. Yes, he came into history as a human man, but even though that took place, he existed forever in eternity past and will exist forever in eternity forward. He has always been entirely equal with God, even in the time where he was walking on earth, 100% God, 100% man. If you want to get all theological on it, go ahead and Google the hypostatic union of Christ. It's, it's, it's a really a mind-boggling, incredible thing. But the point of it all is, is not to get into a debate theologically about how much God and how much man. The point is that even though he was equal with God in every way, he did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he gave up every right that he had for our advantage. Given that Jesus um, is God, we, we know and we believe that everything that is made or has been made has been made through him, has been made by him, and has been made for him. Everything is going to end up worshiping Jesus one day, which means he has ownership of everything, and yet he gave it all up for the purpose of serving others. You know, this phrase right here, um, he did not use it to his own advantage, it comes from this idea of grasping onto something. So we could interpret this uh, and say, well, Jesus loosened his grip and let go of all the things that he might use to keep himself elevated above others and become a servant of everyone else. <coughs> Excuse me. Throughout his life, Jesus had no shortage of opportunities to serve people, and he took every single one of those opportunities. Um, for example, or just, just going on here where it says that he, he made himself nothing by becoming a servant, um, he healed um, excuse me, sorry, I lost my place there for a second. Throughout his life, Jesus found a great wide variety of ways to serve people. He, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. For example, uh, we can read in the four biographies of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament, and we can see that he regularly stopped, showed compassion, and cared for the people um, who often went unnoticed. 
Now, you could look at that and say, well, he was just a nice guy. Or you could look, out, look at it and say that Jesus let go of any notion of self-importance and made every single person he met with feel more important than him. Uh, he healed people who were sick. Some people were really sick with diseases that like, excommunicated them from, from society. Other people were sick with a fever. It was kind of minor. They were laid up in bed for an afternoon. And yet Jesus still saw them as important enough to go and heal. What does that mean? It means he let go of his desire to be kept safe and risked being infected for the purpose of serving someone else. And actually, there were religious laws in place at the time that not only was Jesus risking his physical health, but he was risking, in a sense, his religious reputation as he engaged with people who were cast out by religious leaders who said, you can't be around them because they're diseased. They obviously aren't close to God. He risked it. He let go. There were people who were dead, and then Jesus went and interacted with them, and when he was done, they weren't dead anymore. Like, he brought them back to life. Talk about being a servant. Like, the most, uh, most, real, like the most tangible version of, of serving somebody and helping somebody is when they can't help themselves, they're dead, bringing them back to life. And what does that mean? Well, it means Jesus let go of any risk that came with his reputation of being associated with dead people. It, 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 Jesus let go of so many things. There's so many acts of, of servanthood that we see in all of Scripture. And, and too many to list today, absolutely. But really what it boils down to is Jesus let go. He opened his hands. He loosened his grasp. He let go his rights, his honor, his power, his reputation, everything, his life for the sake of serving others. And Paul talks about the culmination of all of these verses and how he ultimately loosed his grip and let go of his life and died. One scholar puts it this way. I think this is a powerful quote about the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, Crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity. A public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation. No other form of death no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the pre-existing Christ, and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father. Jesus' mission was to save people and unite people. And he did this by letting go of everything, even his life. In the most humiliating and final way, he gave up his rights, he gave up his power, he gave up his life. And we, as a church, are attempting to continue on in mission with Jesus, following along, recognizing that he did this for us, and now is enabling us to do this for others. So we, too, give up our rights. We give up our power. We give up our entitlement. Ultimately, we give up our lives. You know, Jesus did die sacrificially, but before he died sacrificially, he lived humbly and he lived sacrificially. The same thing is true for us. We, we may at one point in our lives be put in a situation where we actually need to physically die in the place of another person. That, that's, that's possible. But way more common and way more often, it's the daily opportunities that we have to die to ourselves, to put aside our own interests, to look to the interests of others, and to elevate them above ourselves and become their servant.
And so as we live in unity with Jesus, we recognize that he is still serving us today. And as he's humbly serving us today, he is turning us in to a humble servant. Why? For the sake of the mission, that we may humbly serve other people and be united as one. If Jesus, who is God, gave up everything for the sake of unifying his followers... And He's the one that we are following. He's the one we praise. He's the one we recognize gave us new life. Then what right do we think we have to hang on to? We have nothing to hold on to. Everything we have was given to us by Jesus. And He's saying, let it go. And this ought to drive us to worship, actually. Even as I was writing this sermon, as I was studying this scripture, I was brought to a place of joy and almost I was overwhelmed a little bit by the reality of what Jesus has done. Yes, historically on the cross, but what he's continuing to do in my life and in the life of my family, the real tangible ways that he continues to serve me. And it draws me to worship. It makes me want to sing. And what's really cool about that is that these verses... Philippians 2, verse 5 to 11, that portion of our scripture is actually something that's known as, as the, the hymn of Christ or the Christ hymn. So Paul, as he's writing this, talking about unity, was referring to a song or a poem that the Philippian church would have actually sung or recited regularly as a confession of their faith. So what he's saying is like, uh, church, you are united around this confession about who Jesus is. And it covers the gamut, doesn't it? His incarnation, his life, his death, his ultimate place of, of being blessed and put to the most highest place um, in, in the presence uh, at the right hand of God. And then even the vision, the picture of people everywhere recognizing Jesus and worshiping him. It has all of that. And Paul is saying, church. You sing these things and you confess these things and you believe these things all about what he has done to serve you. Therefore, there is nothing that could ever be enough to divide us and be a barrier because Jesus has done the ultimate thing in serving us. He is making it possible. He is uniting us together. That's an incredible thing. And we still sing every single week when we come together. Actually, we'll do that in just a few minutes as the service begins to wrap up. We will sing together. Why? Because it's for that moment. It's for those times where one song, one truth in front of us, we're singing in a unified voice, in one spirit, passionately saying, yes, Jesus, there are so many things that could divide us, but we're all aligned around the truth about who you are, your love, what you've done for us, that you'll never leave us, that you'll never abandon us. At the beginning of the year, the beginning of every year, our church uh, holds a week of prayer in the first week of, of January. And this year was no different. What we did this year is uh, Pastor Vijay actually um, asked the church, our elders, our staff, a variety of other people to be um, praying before God to ask him, what are the areas of corporate sin that, that exist in our church? What are the patterns of brokenness that we need to deal with? And actually, on the first night of the week of prayer, uh, a, a large group from our congregation was together, and we were praying, and we were listening, and, and we discerned, and were able to distill uh, the things that God was saying where work needs to be done. He, he distilled it down into kind of four areas. And what actually is really cool is this past week, at our monthly encounter night of prayer, um, the people who were facilitating that actually went back to the, the notes that we had from the beginning of the year and were able to see a way that Philippians chapter 2 actually deals with each and every one of these four areas. Now, these are just four of the points. 
These are the four big areas, but there's an, an entire prayer guide or confession guide that's actually available on our website right now, upperroom.ca slash blog. Go there and, and find the more, the more ex, blown up or more ex, uh, explained out version um, of, of all this. But, but really, we have to be honest with where we're at, with where our church is at, and begin seeking forgiveness from God and from one another in order to begin finding a new way forward in unity. And so the four areas are, one of them is unforgiveness and bitterness. What, do you, what are we? I don't want to say you. This is us. We're in this together. What are we grasping onto from the past? What are we not letting go of? What are we doing to, instead of letting go like Jesus did not hold on to it or consider it a thing to be grasped, in the same way, what is it that we're holding on to so tightly that we're not allowing God to do a new work around us or in us? What about jealousy and striving? Are, are, are any of us grasping on to the need for acknowledgement or the need for personal praise to the point where we, we, we no longer serve because we don't, get, uh, we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve? Well, that actually is something we need to let go of. If anybody deserved to be worshipped or praised or acknowledged for anything, it was Jesus, the God of the universe. And yet he opened his hands and he let it go. What about spiritual laziness? Are there areas in our lives where we're grasping on to the busyness of life and we feel as if we're plugged into everything, but we're not plugged into Jesus? And, and maybe one of the things we're grasping onto that we're not loosening, that we're not letting go is saying, well, it's actually not my fault. If only our church preached a different way, or if only we had Bible studies, or even if it was, if, you know, there's just so many negative influences in my life and we make it about someone else. But in reality, it's us holding on tightly to certain things instead of loosening our hands, letting go and making space for Jesus. Yeah, maybe it's in this category of fear of death, suffering, loss, or failure. This is not referring to um, the reality, like that, that somebody, that people are going to legitimately die, actually die as we go into a multi-church, as we go into a multi-site. I mean, it's possible, I don't know. But, but that's not what we're saying. Rather, what we're getting at here is saying, when it comes to a fear of death, it's saying, I don't want to let go of the things that I'm most comfortable with. I don't want to change. I don't want to try something new. I like things the way that they are. And so maybe what we're grasping onto in this sense is a need for control or a need for perfectionism or a need for, for power or our own need for influence. And really, what we're grasping onto can be keeping us from experiencing oneness with Jesus, but also oneness with one another. So the question is, what are you grasping onto? What am I grasping onto? What are the things that, that we need to follow Jesus in his humility and his servanthood and in his servanthood attitude, servant-hearted attitude? What are the things where we need to say, I have been holding on too tightly. It's now I need to let go. How do we do this? We do it through confession. Confession is the first step we need to take in opening up our hands. Really, confession is um, first telling the things that we're holding on to to God and asking for His forgiveness and His help. But confession is also necessarily needing to be done in, in community. And so maybe there's somebody that you know that you need to begin talking this through with and say, you know, here's an area I've really been wrestling with. Here's a tension I've been feeling. Here's how I feel like I'm actually contributing to a wall that's blocking us and keeping us um, from being united with one another. And most importantly, then there's the people where the actual offense 
seems to stand. You know, there's a person in the mix where you might actually have some beef. Maybe it's a person in your small in your home group. Maybe it's a person on leadership. Maybe it's another person in the church, whatever it may be. Well, the process of confession is saying we need to bring these things before others to say, I don't want to be stuck in this anymore. I want to open my hands just like Jesus did. I want to become a servant of others. And that begins with confession. I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to come forward. And, and as they do, I want to give us some practical Two practical things, like two pieces of homework as far as this confession thing goes. So, I mean, first and foremost, upperroom.ca slash blog. Go there, get the broader, um, the, the, get the broader uh, uh, confession guide. Go there and, and just look at that resource. It's really good. But then what I want for every one of us to do is to actually confess and pray these things before Jesus. It was powerful last Sunday night when we were together, praying in a circle, three different groups representing each of the different sites, people being honest about the things they need to confess that are holding, that they're holding on to, that are holding them back from the fullness of being united with Jesus and one another. So confess that to God. But then also, I want for each one of us to connect with somebody else. Somebody else that we know can hold us accountable, somebody that we trust, somebody that we can talk things through with. But then, like I've already said, take it to the next level and even engage with the person where, or even connect with the person where that actual issue may stand. Maybe you need to say to somebody, you know, I've been hesitant or I felt this tension or I haven't really appreciated the way you've gone about this or just get it out on the table. Because you know what? In the mess of being honest is where God is going to begin to do his work. If we keep everything to ourselves, we're segregating ourselves out. But the more we trust Jesus to confess things to him, the more we find grace for one another. If I could sum up this entire message in a couple of sentences, I would say this. Even though Jesus is God, he never considered that something to be grasped for himself. Instead, he opened up his hands for the sake of others and he served every single person. He's inviting us to do the same thing. So let's loosen our grasp from the things that are keeping us from unity with one another. Let's trust God and let's see how he is going to bring us together in uniting us on mission in mending the broken world that we live in. Jesus, we know, we believe it's our confession that we can't do this on our own. We need a supernatural working of your Holy Spirit to begin working in our lives individually, but then ultimately bringing us together. And so, in faith, Jesus, we pray that you would continue to put your finger on the areas in our life where our hands have been clenched tight, the things we've been grasping onto, and pry our hands open that just like you, we would say, I count it all as a loss for the sake of serving someone else. Jesus, you showed us how to do this in giving your life. You've modeled how we can do it in our, own, in our own lives. And you've promised to be with us all the way through. And we want to be a church united for your sake, for your cause, for your mission. So Jesus, we commit ourselves to taking this seriously, to following you, acknowledging our union with you, and then moving forward on mission with other people, understanding that you are God and everything and that you are worth it. Thank you, Jesus. We ask for your help, and we pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you, church.